Hope everyone enjoyed their Independence Day uh, celebrations and that. We appreciate the freedoms we have, don't we? Um, of course, we know there are many concerns as we look around us. I'm sure many of us have many concerns with some of the things we see, but we still appreciate at the present time the freedoms that we have. And certainly beyond that, we appreciate and thank God for the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, free from sin. Uh, sin is a cruel master. It's a bondage. That's what the scripture calls it, a, the bondage of sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Son sets free, shall be free indeed. He can set you free from the bondage of sin. And so we thank God for that freedom. Well, we're in First Samuel, as we have been. First Samuel, and we're in chapter 16. First Samuel 16. And we're going to refer back to chapter 15 a few times as we get started. Um, our brother Ron did a very, very apt job covering chapter 15. But there's so much that ties in from chapter 15 as we see uh, the transition, uh, at least the anointing of a new king. Chapter 15 ended with King Saul and his disobedience. Chapter 16, we're going to be introduced to a new king. This would be God's man. And so we're going to refer back to chapter 15 a few times. I know Brother Ron won't mind. It's just because of the, the correlation, the contrast between what was done and what was to be done from chapter 15 to chapter 16. Okay, but first, let's read uh, verses 1 to 13, which is the assigned portion. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him? From reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one. I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he, uh, that is Samuel, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And no doubt that's the, that's the key verse in this passage, and certainly as we will contrast back to chapter 15, uh, we'll think quite a bit about that. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these and Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? 
And then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Quite a picture. Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Let's just pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to open your word together. We trust uh, as we think on the word of God, we trust that you are still speaking even yet today, speaking through your word, speaking through the gospel. We do thank you for the opportunity to look into it. We just ask that you would help us, lead us and guide us in your word and direct us into, in that sense, all truth, that we would be able to rightly divide your word. We give you thanks for the opportunity. We ask your blessing, committing ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we think back to chapter 15 and what had gone on there, I believe it's safe to say that what we found in chapter 15 was in Saul's disobedience a manifestation of what was in his heart. In Saul's disobedience, we saw an outward manifestation of what was in his heart. What was in his heart? I think simply put, well, the scriptures tell us. He rejected the word of the Lord. He did not believe the word of the Lord. He would not, for that matter, take God at his simple word. Saul was a man who had, at least in chapter 15, his own ideas And so he was rejected. We're going to go back to that. If you would just, I have the most boring PowerPoint you've ever seen. I've just got one slide here uh, just to put up what I think would be, uh, you could call it an overview or an outline. We're going to see, oh, I should have bolded that, a disobedient king rejected. We're going to think about that first. Then we're going to consider a faithful priest. That would be Samuel, who was dejected, directed, and corrected. And then a young boy who was neglected. And finally, and thank you, Jason, a new king elected. A disobedient king rejected. Saul was a man in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel that had his own ideas. God had given him a command. God's command was to go and to wipe out Amalek. Wipe them out. It was God's judgment upon that man. In fact, in verse 33, you'll notice the words of Samuel as he prepares to execute the king, Agag, the king of Amalek. He says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. It's somewhat of a brute scene, a grotesque scene. But Saul had been given that command, go in and wipe out Amalek, 
utterly destroy them. It was God's judgment upon that people. I don't know all of what was in God's uh, plan, but we can clearly see it was God's judgment upon the people of Amalek. And it was a command, a relatively simple command. God would give you the victory. You go in and you wipe them out. That's the beginning of chapter 15. But we considered last week. First Samuel fifteen eleven. the Lord said to Samuel, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. We're going to read a little bit here because it's just so key as we lead into chapter 16. When Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying Saul went to Carmel. This is chapter 15 of first Samuel in verse 12. And indeed, he has set up a monument for himself. What a display. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then? What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? What is this that I hear? If you have performed the commandment of the Lord, what am I hearing? And Saul said, They, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people the people they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. It was well pointed out. It's like Genesis 3 all over again, isn't it? God would give a simple command. Of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree in the center of the garden you shall not eat of it lest you die. They would not take God at his word. And then, of course, there was the blame game. Well, the woman that you gave to me and so forth and so on. We know the story. So Saul, he does all kind of things here. He blames. He first tries to say, well, I did it. But then he blames. And then he goes beyond that, beyond the, the cry that he did it. And beyond the blame game, he goes on to say, In verse 20 and 21, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and Gilgal. He claimed he obeyed, which he didn't. He blamed the people, and he went so far as to say, as if it would appease Samuel or appease God, we have done it in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. It seems that Saul, it seems to me, Saul didn't know the Lord. He certainly didn't know the character of God. He didn't know, didn't understand that God was a real person. God is a real person. That God is not a God of ritual, but a God in that sense of relationship. That God was not a God of religiosity, but a God of reality. And so Saul would say, well, it seems like a side note, but this is exactly what Samuel addresses. 
we were going to sacrifice to the Lord. As if to say, I have some of my own ideas, but I'll bring God an offering, but I'll bring it to God. Similar to Genesis chapter 4, isn't it? With Cain and Abel. God had prescribed a way for it to be done. Will you take him at his word or will you not? Will you take him at his word? Saul did not take God at his word. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. He would not take God at his word. And the outward manifestation of that was his disobedience to the commandment of God. Because he would not take God at his word. And so Samuel says to him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Sometimes I have this type of interaction with my kids, really do. I say, listen, the kitchen, we've got the oven on, the stove's going, everything's running there, please stay out. Next thing I know, I turn around and bump into one of them. Well, what are you doing? Well, Daddy, I'm here to help you. Well, how you could help me is by obeying what I told you to do, which is to stay out of the kitchen. It's similar to that. Solve the audacity, the misunderstanding, the misrepresentation of who God is. That he could bring us. He missed the whole point. He missed the whole point. I think you could say. That the heart of unbelief, the heart that has no faith in God and in his word, can never enter into the merit of the sacrifice. Could never. And that was Saul. A heart of unbelief. A heart that would not take God at his word. And because of that, he could never enter into the merit of the sacrifice. And as we fast forward to the New Testament, the message is very clear. The message is very simple. God set not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you take God at his word? Will you do it his way? Or do you have your own ideas, your own ways of going about it? I know God wants reality. I know he wants my heart, but I'll do it my own way. I've got a better idea. I can disobey or partially obey as we heard. And yet somehow still please God. Somehow still come into a right standing with God. A right relationship with God. It cannot be if you will not take him at his word. And his word is very simple. And the world is filled with people like this. Filled with religious people. Filled with people who come and go into church. And even like Saul, he goes on to say, come that I could worship with you. How could a heart that's so far off from God ever bring worship that's acceptable to him? But the world is filled with people like this. I had a friend once. And I was spending some time with him and he invited me to go out. He told me of all this this party and all these things that were going to be going on. And some of these things I look back on and I just thank the grace of God that he spared me from them. I don't know why I didn't go. Honestly, I don't know why I didn't go, but I didn't. And he told me about all that. It was just sensual and it was as bad as you can be. In a sense, it was bad. 
He told me all about it. That was Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, I was at his house, and he said, oh, you're going to come with us to church? And I was sitting there thinking, well, what will I do? And so I went with them. And there in the church, listen, I don't know his heart. All I know is what I saw on Saturday night, what I heard of, and the way that he presented it to me. And there on Sunday morning, they clapped, they waved, and they worshipped, or so they thought. But not a worship that was acceptable to God. A heart that was far from God. God forbid we ever think that we can come and carry out, even here in the meeting, rituals. This is not a place for rituals. It's a place for reality. I'm not saying we don't struggle. We struggle. We have difficulties. But the point is that when my heart is far from God, my desire should be not to just go through the motions. But may we be stirred up to repent, to repent, to ask God for a change of heart. That my delight would be in the things that he delights in. That we could really be near to him. God, never a God of religiosity, but a God of reality. He wanted Saul's heart, but Saul's heart was far from him. And so the Lord says in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long, how long will you mourn for Saul? The Lord, it's interesting, he doesn't say why. Why are you mourning for Saul? I think it was noble. I do. Samuel loved the Lord's people. Samuel was in many senses a faithful priest. And his heart was broken because of the failure of the king of Israel. And so he grieved. He grieved. I wonder, as I read this, if I were there in Israel, would my heart have broken the way that Samuel's heart had broken? Would I have grieved over failure amidst the Lord's people? Would it have bothered me at all? Would I have any care? What is it, for that matter, that grieves me? What is it that grieves you? What brings you to tears? What brings you to mourn? What hurts you? Do you grieve over the things that God grieves over? Is all of our grief, is all of our mourning over temporal, worldly, passing things? Is it over? And there are many, we face many difficult things. I'm not making light of them. There are difficult situations in life. But do I ever grieve over the things that grieve the Lord? What grieves him? Sin grieves him. Genesis 6 says that when God looked down upon men and he saw the wickedness of their hearts, every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6 says it grieved him. It grieved him. Are you grieved over sin? Am I grieved over sin? Does it bother me? Does it grieve me? If it doesn't, it may be an indicator that we're a little distant from the God that saved us, that we're not very near to him. The closer we draw to him, I do believe, the closer we draw to him, the more our heart will be in line with him. We'll grieve over the things he grieves for and we'll find delight in the things 
that he delights. Psalm 40 and verse 8, a prophetic passage of sorts regarding the Lord Jesus. He says, I delight to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will, O God. What do we grieve over? What do we grieve over? The Lord God grieves over the lost. He grieves over the lost. Do we grieve over the lost? Do we have any burden at all for the, the world that is passing away around us? Do I have any burden? I speak to myself. Are we grieved the way that he's grieved? The Lord Jesus was grieved over the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. Are we grieved over religious people that do not know the Lord? People that are steeped in religion. They do their thing, so to speak, but they do not know the Lord that grieved the Lord Jesus. He was grieved over the wayward hearts of the Pharisees and all those religious leaders who were far from God, but very religious. That grieved him. Does it grieve you? Does it grieve me? Well, I suppose we could take another lesson as well, because the Lord says, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, there is a time to grieve over past failure. And I think that's what we could call Saul. For the children of Israel, King Saul was at this point now a past failure. Now we're going to go on into some other chapters as the weeks go on and see that there's a transition. And it's kind of drawn out before David has actually taken the place of king. But Saul was a past failure. And Samuel was grieving over him. But it's as if the Lord would say, Samuel, my work will go forward. My work will go forward. My purposes are not thwarted. Aren't you glad to know? I am so glad to know that God's purposes, that my salvation, that the church is not dependent upon men. When men fail or falter, or fade away into eternity, or some fall ill, God's work goes forward. God's purposes go forward. God's work is not dependent upon men. A wonder of wonders that he uses us, and he does. But what we see in Saul is quite remarkable, really. Saul starts in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel calls all the people together. It says all the nations of Israel, there were a lot of people there. I don't know how he communicated to them all, but it says he called them all together. And he's going to introduce to them their king. And he takes, he narrows it down. There's some drama there. He takes the tribe of Benjamin and then the family of Malchi or something, then the family of Kish and so forth, down and down and down till it's narrowed in on this man, Saul. But you remember what happened, don't you? Where is he? Where is he? And someone says, well, there he is, hiding, hiding among the stuff, hiding among the equipment. I suppose we could learn many things from that and not to go back to that because we considered too much. But one thing we could say for certain is at that point in time, Saul did not think very much of himself. He couldn't have. I mean, here he was going to be introduced. The drama was built. 
and your king. Where is he? He's hiding. Saul didn't think very much of himself, but oh, how things had changed. Oh, how things had changed. When we get to chapter 15, we already read it. He builds a monument for himself. It's as if he thinks that he is absolutely necessary for the work of the Lord to go forward. It's as if he thinks that he is it. Not a man in dependence upon the Lord. And Samuel says to him in 1 Samuel 15 verse 17. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? You want to know what happens oftentimes? I think I see it in in my own life. I've seen it in Christianity. The Lord calls us into service to do things for him. Oftentimes we're timid, we're reluctant, but, but sometimes, boy, we get going and we're doing things for the Lord. And while at first we're like, well, I don't know if I can do that. I don't think I can do that. Then we get rolling with it. And before we know it, we think the Lord couldn't do it without us. We think that we're absolutely necessary to carry out, to push forward the purposes of God. As if it's not him doing it through us. Well, Saul pictures that for us, doesn't he? A man who started thinking very little of himself when he was going to be introduced hiding among the equipment. But fast forward some time, a couple of victories, a couple of battles and victories won. And now he thinks he's it. Now he thinks he's it. No longer thinks little of himself, but thinks very much of himself. The same can be true And real Christianity, it can be. I am so glad to know that God's purposes go on beyond men. There have been many, well, we call them sometimes great men of God, and there have been. Some have said there are no real great men of God, just humble, ordinary men that serve a great God. That's perhaps a better way to say it. There have been many of these men who have come and who have gone. But God's work goes forward. Nothing against them. Tremendous men. We thank God for them. But God's work goes forward. There have been men raised up who fail. They falter. They fall away. But God's purposes go forward. Why? Well, Samuel tells us in 1 Samuel 15, 29. He says, and also, this is when Samuel is speaking to Saul, He says, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man. He is not a man. Aren't you glad? I know I am. That my salvation does not depend upon a man. That the church, this church, the universal church, is not dependent upon a man. I'm not minimizing what we can do. We do it when we do it, when we do what we do. It's the Lord working in us living through us, but we're not, if if men fail, God is faithful. God's work goes on. We don't gather to a pastor, a priest, a pope, a preacher, a praise team, none of that. We gather to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is our strength. He is the one that he's all in all, isn't he? That's what the New Testament says. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the church, he is all of it. 
He's the foundation upon which we stand. He's the savior of our souls. He's the shepherd to whom we look. He's the head of the church. He is all in all. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man. He's a person, but he's not a man. Well, that was then. Now I suppose we could say he's not a man. But he's the God man. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look to him. So how long will you mourn? Well, there's a time for mourning and there's a time to move on. God's purposes would go forward. And so the Lord says, fill your horn with oil and go and go. We've been called to go as well, haven't we? But it does take some filling, doesn't it? It's a good good principle there. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. It's a good idea to fill your horn with oil before we go. And so the Lord says, fill your horn with oil just to say that we need the spirit of God working through us. We go out in dependence upon him to be filled with him, to be manifesting him, to be showing people him, to be shedding light upon who he is, to proclaim his good news, his gospel upon his merit and what he's done. We go And so he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I, listen to this, have provided myself a king among his sons. This time, this time, it would be all of the Lord and none of man. God would do it all. God would do it all. And as we go forward to the New Testament, we see in our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done it all who has done it all. It is all of him. All we have to do, like Saul should have done, is take God at his word. Just believe. Just believe. Just put your faith in God, his character, his word. Believe. He has done it all. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I don't want to over spiritualize the text, but Samuel was told Samuel was fearful of what was going to happen. Hey, I'm going to go out and anoint a new king. What is Saul going to think of that? Even the Lord's priest was subject to fear. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. There is a sense in which the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus at Calvary is all that we need to quench all fears. There is a real sense of that. When we have difficulties, when we have trouble, when we have doubts about God keeping his promises, I think, and I think Romans 5 supports this, what we ought to do is to look back on what he's already done. We look back at Calvary. We look, what, look there at what God did in the person of the Lord Jesus. How do I know that God will do what he says he's going to do? Because I know what he's done, what he's already done. We look back at Calvary and we see what God did there. And so the Lord said, take a sacrifice with, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I name to you. One thing we find interesting, oftentimes in God's word, as the Lord dealt with these different characters, real people, right? These are real, real history. 
is that oftentimes when the Lord would give commands, as we see here with Samuel, he would give a command, but he didn't necessarily give them the whole story. It was going to be a walk of faith. Well, that was true of Abraham, wasn't it? I mean, that's probably the most clear picture. Go out into a land that I will show you. And so Abraham starts going. Where am I going? You know, Sarah, Abraham, where are we going? I'm going to a land that the Lord will show me. It's going to be a walk of faith, a walk of faith, one step at a time, a walk of faith. And so the Lord gives him in that sense part. He gives him a command, but doesn't tell him everything that's going to happen. He says, you're to go and then I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The worship of God as manifested in the sacrifice was not a haphazard thing in the Old Testament. Was not a haphazard thing. He would say, sanctify yourselves. And then come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse, set them apart, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was that when they came, that he, that Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel had seen, but he hadn't yet heard. He saw what was before him, but the Lord said, I'm going to tell you the one that I'm going to name for you. Samuel saw, but he hadn't yet heard. He hadn't yet heard the voice of the Lord. And yet he makes this proclamation. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. What else could we say but to say that it seems like Samuel fell into the very same thing that the people had just fallen into. He looked at the outward appearance. I'm assuming Eliab was the oldest. He looked at the outward appearance, hadn't heard yet the voice of the Lord. And yet he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. We have to wait on the voice of the Lord, don't we? Sometimes, well, we could apply it in many ways. Sometimes people are pushed into positions that they ought not be in. Because no one has stopped to wait to hear the voice of the Lord. Sometimes we run through a door that we may think is of the Lord but we haven't stopped yet to listen to the voice of the Lord, to wait and to listen and to have him make it clear. And so the Lord said to Samuel, and this is the buildup from the past five or six chapters. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart boy. There's a lot in that verse, isn't there? So much that could be said. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. We're subject to it day in and day out. Time and time again. We see through our own physical eyes. Albeit we know we cannot see men's hearts. We know that. Only God can see the heart of man. But if we will but wait and listen... 
Wait and listen for the voice of the Lord, because the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And our time runs short, but it says, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. An interesting scenario, isn't it? Samuel's been given a command. I'm going to tell you the one who you're going to anoint. And here, Jesse brings his sons, seven of them, and they pass before Samuel. And time and time again, the Lord says, no, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Samuel wouldn't be part in that sense of the choosing process. It wouldn't be of Samuel's own wisdom and volition. It wouldn't be Jesse either. We can clearly see because he didn't even bring David to the ceremony. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of the young men here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. What an introduction to the future king of Israel. A shepherd boy. There he is keeping the sheep. No doubt one of the most humble professions you could have. David was put to keep the sheep. I understand that oftentimes they would have servants that would keep the sheep. It was that type of a position. The sons wouldn't do it. The servants would do it. A very humble, humble place. And that's where we're introduced to David at. I throw one thing out for you, and you make of it what you will. But I do find it interesting that when we're first introduced to Saul, we find him chasing donkeys. When we're introduced to David... We find him keeping the sheep. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. You take it for what you will. Saul was chasing donkeys. David was keeping the sheep. And so Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Well, that's some honor for a shepherd boy, isn't it? None of us are going to sit down. I wonder how his brother's like that. We're not going to sit down until he comes here. We're not going to return. We're not going to, this is not over until he comes here. David out keeping the sheep. Just one brief thought. Uh, many have noted, this is certainly not, not, not new news, many have noted that it was perhaps in those days as a shepherd that David had drawn into such a deep relationship with the Lord. Many of his uh, writings reflect God's creation, we can only assume that he was out there uh, in the night watching these sheep. Uh, Boring at times, I guess. At other times, quite exciting when he's fighting off an animal. But many have commented that it was perhaps there that he drew so near to the Lord to come up with all of the writings through the Psalms that you'll see. Not all of them, but a, a good portion of them. That many of those originated there in those dark nights as a shepherd boy. There under the stars of heaven. So we ought not despise the boring jobs, right? Some of us have have boring jobs. We ought not despise them. We ought not despise the busy jobs either for that matter. But we have in the Lord an occupation that transcends all occupations. That we, wherever we may be, in the field as a shepherd for David, or one day on the king as a throne, 
an occupation that transcends all occupations. I must be about my father's business. My food, the Lord Jesus said, is to do the will of him that sent me. Is to do my father's will. The occupation that transcends all. We can do it whether it's as a shepherd in the fields, whether it's as king of Israel. What a tremendous place we have to know the Lord. And so he sent and brought him, and he was ready and with bright eyes and good looking. Well, he, you know, it wasn't like he was just terrible looking. The scriptures say he was good looking, but it's not the point. The point is that the Lord knew his heart, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Well, we'll learn many more things about King David in the days to come. There's lots more to be said of him. But we do trust that the lessons, as we've contrasted Saul and who he was, To this new king who was to be God's chosen man, all of God, I have provided myself a king. We do trust we can take many lessons. The Old Testament is filled with these tremendous stories. We can take and apply many things as we go forward. May God help us to live in reality with him. A heart like David's, not like Saul's, but that we would take him at his word. Help us. Our Father, we give you thanks for the blessing of knowing your beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a tremendous privilege it is to know him as Savior, as Lord, as King, as Shepherd. Truly, he is our all in all. And we give you thanks. Thank you for the occupation of being about our Father's business. Help us to continue to be day in and day out that we might be truly in reality in step with you. And when we are not, when we're not delighting in you and delighting over the things you delight in and grieving over the things you grieve for, may we be willing to repent, to get back with you, to get back into your word that you might draw near to us. We know your scriptures promise that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Help us, we pray. We want to walk in reality. We don't want to be a people of religiosity here. We don't want to be a church of ritual but we want to be a people of relationship, deep relationship with you, that we would walk forward with you. Help us, we pray, O God. We give you thanks, and you'll get all the glory we trust in Jesus' name.